Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Hello, good afternoon, and uh, welcome to The Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine, and I'm standing in for Leslie, who is enjoying, I hope anyway, a well-deserved vacation. Uh, We've got a very packed couple of uh, hours for you this afternoon, and I hope that you'll be able to stay with us for as long as you possibly can. Uh, Starting off, we've got uh, a colleague of mine, a a friend and a political reporter on Newsweek called Taylor Wofford, and he's joining us. And he's going to talk about the Democratic race, which, of course, until recently has been rather dull because only one candidate seems to have appeared. But out of the blue has uh, turned up uh, the extraordinary Bernie Sanders. Uh, So, Taylor... Uh, tell us a few things about Bernie Sanders that we don't know. Uh, what you don't know about him. Uh, he used to be a singer, and he has a fairly funny folk album. Uh, let me get the name of it for you real quick. It is called... Let's see. He recorded it when he was serving as the mayor of Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and it is called Bernie Sanders' We Shall Overcome. So is he in that old sort of 60s tradition of protest singers like Bob Dylan? Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think it's, that's exactly what it is. And the 60s have inspired him, presumably, by the sound of it. it certainly by his politics, that seems to be the case, yes. Now, it's most unusual because he uh, describes himself as a democratic socialist, which you would imagine would be a kiss of death in a country like America, where the word socialist is a smear for the most part, uh, particularly from people on the right, and it's a tantamount to calling someone a communist. No distinction is made here between socialism and communism. Mm-hmm. But Vermont's an odd state, so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of one of the few places where, where something like that would, would fly. Uh, you know, they have a strong independent streak up there, and uh, he runs as an independent, and he, uh, he's won uh, over and over again uh, up there, so they seem to like it. So is that going to be very easy for him to get in on the Democratic ticket, considering he isn't even a member of the Democratic Party? No, he caucuses with them, um, but he is not uh, a member of the party. I think I, I don't think it'll be a trouble for him to get on the ticket. I think it'll be tough for him to beat Hillary Clinton, certainly. 
Yeah, so what would be the point then? Because, I mean, two things. First of all, he's unlikely to beat Hillary. He's just a steamroller, and she, uh, in that old cliché, sucked all the oxygen out of the room, and she's stolen all the money already uh, to run all the the big Democratic uh, donors are on her side. So what chance is Bernie Sanders of achieving that? Very little, in which case, uh, even if he were to get to beat Hillary, and let's let's speculate that he does, then there's no chance he's going to win the general election. So tell me, why is a man like Bernie Sanders is going into this race at all? Well, uh, he seems to think he can win, but I think the real the real damage he could do, so to speak, is to drive Hillary to the left. Um, he's going to, you know, in the debates, he's going to force her to answer. Uh, you know, they're both running on the get money out of politics platform. The difference is that Bernie Sanders won't accept money from major corporations. Hillary Clinton will. Uh, so he's going to make her defend on a national stage how she is able to accept money from these big businesses while also calling for that very same money to be out of politics. And I think if anything, that'll force her to be a stronger candidate or, and at the very least force her a little bit to the left. Yeah, uh, you'd imagine that if she's only answering questions from a socialist that she's going to have to try to appease him in some ways because you imagine, too, that particularly the younger parts of the Democratic uh, voters, uh, they are likely to be more left than Hillary Clinton, which wouldn't be very difficult in as much as I guess she's sort of centre-centre-right, isn't she? Mm -hmm. Right. I'd I'd say that's for – yeah, that's true. Yeah. So uh, is there anyone else going to get into this race, do you think? Uh, probably. I mean, it's, it's hard to tell at this point. I think anyone who does get in this race is just going to slow Hillary down, essentially. But I think there, there are always a, a few, you know, unlikelies who will, who will join the race. So there's talk of Jim Webb. Do you think he's very likely? Um, I, think, I, think he'll, I think he will. Yeah, I think he will. Yeah. And what about mm-hmm. Joe Biden? Uh, who would, if, you know, who, he's not someone who's self-effacing very often. And I'm sure that he, in, uh, in his private moments, he thinks he'd make a pretty good president. But, but is he finished as soon as Hillary declared that's the end of uh, Biden? You know, I don't know. If I were him, I would be... He, he doesn't seem to get tired of politics the way other people do. He's been in, in Washington for something like 40 years. So he, you know, he might. And he's seen, I guess, the stress that it, that it entails. So if he, thinks, uh, if he thinks he's up to it, yeah, I'd, I personally don't think he would, he'll run. I don't think it would be smart for him to... Well, well, what about if he wanted to be Secretary of State? He's very fond of traveling abroad and uh, telling truth. He does, um, but I think that might not be the best job for him, and I think he probably knows that. Secretary of State requires a lot of tact and finesse, which uh, Joe Biden has a lot of good qualities, but I would not put tact and finesse among them necessarily. (laughs) I think that's true, Uh, which is one of the reasons, of course, he's uh, so likable, isn't he? Because he doesn't actually... Right, right. He doesn't come off as a politician. He's happy to upset people, which is good, including, you know, some, uh, you know, Putin and people like that. He's happy to annoy. We like that. Right. Well, we like that as in our vice president. I don't think we'd like that very much in our secretary of state. That, yeah, that may, diplomacy, you would think, would be one of the prerequisites you would need in that role, and uh, maybe right. he doesn't have quite enough of that. Now, let's get on to this serious topic, which you raised in, uh, by the way, it, it, in the next couple of hours, almost ev- everybody that uh, appears on this show will have uh, had a piece that it ran on Newsweek, uh, on the Newsweek site. So, by all means, look up newsweek.com and see where we are. Uh, you wrote a, a piece about uh, not only uh, the, the great battle in Sanders versus Clinton, which is about corporate money, Sanders having almost no money and Clinton having scooped the pool effectively uh, by, by leaving herself so late in the race, I guess, that uh, it is, it, everybody, no one else could raise any money until Hillary declared and then she finally declared and she, all, she had all the money. But uh, 
there are, there's an interesting thing, isn't there, about uh, already one of the many uh, problems that she's got into is exactly to do with the taking of money by the Clinton Foundation. Right. Uh, the Clinton cash book. Yeah, no, it's certainly a problem for her, I think. I think it's more of an, an optical problem than uh, a legal problem. As I wrote in my piece, I don't think that anything that the author of Clinton Cash, Peter Schweitzer, uh, says or reveals raises or rises to the level of illegality, but it, none of it looks good particularly. Um, and as he says, and I think the conclusion of the book, don't we want a president with with better political judgment than someone who's, who's going to put themselves in these compromising positions over and over again? I think that's a good question, and she's going to have to answer it. Yeah. What do we know about Peter Schweitzer? This is the guy who's written this book. Clinton yeah, I Catch. mean, uh, he's he's fairly right wing. Um, he he has written for Breitbart, uh, places like that before. Um, uh, there's been some some investigation into the the book being funded a little bit by the Koch brothers. Um, but I mean, I think it's he says in the intro of the book that you know I have no intention of bringing down Hillary and Bill Clinton. I just want the truth to be out there. I think that's fairly transparently not true. I mean, that doesn't mean what he's saying isn't true. Uh, you know, they've disputed some of the facts he raises in his book, but not all of them, obviously. Um, so, you know, whether or not his agenda is to is to get Hillary out of the race uh, doesn't change whether or not the things that he's saying are true. Yeah. So what is the main allegation that's made against her then in, the, in this book, Clinton Cash? Uh, I think overall the allegation is that the Clintons, both of them, don't do a great job of differentiating their roles and responsibilities um, as the head of the Clinton Foundation, the heads of the Clinton Foundation, and as Secretary of State and President. And so what he calls he calls it the Clinton blur, which is essentially when when Bill or Clinton is traveling, you know, you don't know if he's traveling as an official representative of the United States. You know, if he asks you for a favor, who is he asking you as? Is he asking you as the head of the Clinton Foundation? Will he, you know, use that leverage against you uh, with his wife, the Secretary of State, that kind of thing? Um, and, you know, uh, another, I guess the other big allegation is that um, when the Clinton Foundation receives donations or Bill does a, a high-value like high speech, um, does that affect Hillary's thinking as as Secretary of State and before that as Senator? Um, and obviously you can't you know you can't get inside her head and say yes it did, but you also you know it looks bad and you can't say that it necessarily didn't either. But it's just a sort of insinuation then that uh, right. if, you, all, try, if all, you follow the money you get very close to Bill Clinton, yeah. who's obviously very close to Hillary Clinton. Right. I mean, it's, uh, I think Aristotle would call it a, a logical fallacy to say, you know, just because uh, some, somebody donated to the Clinton Foundation and then something went well for them uh, that the Secretary of State had to approve doesn't necessarily mean that there was any corruption, uh, but at the same time, it doesn't look great. So, yeah. Well, and I think well first of all, thank you very much for quoting Aristotle, because we don't get Aristotle mentioned half enough, I think, on this show. Uh, so thanks for that. The uh, So... No, am I right in saying that, because you've read the whole book, which most of mm -hmm. us haven't, uh, mm -hmm. does he actually bang to rights any of the allegations? I mean, when I've seen him interviewed on the TV, it suggests that, you know, it's a lot of uh, hearsay and a lot of, you know, draw your own conclusions. But actually, he ran out of time because if he possibly could have nailed her, he would have. Uh, but he doesn't seem to have done that. Is that correct? Well, I'm not sure that it was that he ran out of time. I think that government corruption uh, is very, very difficult to prove. I mean, you basically have to have a smoking gun that says, we gave you X amount of dollars in exchange for Y legislative outcome. Uh, and I, I think very often these, I mean, the Clintons are, are smart people. If, if, if a, something like that was going to exist, 
it wouldn't with them, right? Obviously, they if they were going to, to engage in some sort of corruption, they would not leave a, a, an obvious paper trail like that. Um, so, I mean, what he does is set up all of the, the, uh, the, the uh, I guess, the environment in which corruption could very likely occur. Uh, and he says, here's this, you know, environment that was created in which it would be very, very easy for Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton to have engaged in corruption. I can't prove that they engaged in corruption, but, you know, uh, don't you want a president with better political judgment than someone who would put themselves in this situation? And they're particularly worried about foreign governments having funded uh, projects. Mm-hmm, that's true, yeah. Yeah, and uh, but at the same time, I mean, there are all sorts of people like Rupert Murdoch who have given good money to the Clinton Foundation, haven't they? Mm, I don't know if Rupert Murdoch is a big, is a big founder of the Clinton Foundation. Um, the people he talks about in the book are mostly, yeah, foreign governments, um, especially in sort of war-torn countries where um, there's one there's one anecdote I found particularly interesting about a, a Clinton Foundation donor who essentially financed a coup uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, which seems kind of like you know bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it looks bad, and it's a recurring thing which we'll get to after the break. We've also we'll take a call from Dave in Humboldt County, who's got a question for you about Bernie Sanders. Uh, but right now we'll we'll go for a break. Look, see the other side. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. Leslie's uh, taking a well-earned vacation at the moment. My name's Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the, the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine, and I have here with me uh, two people. First of all, I've got Taylor Wofford, my colleague, who's a political reporter at Newsweek, uh, and he's written some uh, very good stories at the moment about the Democratic race. But we have first uh, someone on the line, uh, Dave from Humboldt Can- County in California, uh, and uh, he's got a question. Dave, are you there? You know what? I think his oh. phone might have dropped. We'll go back to uh, the guest here. Okay. Uh, well, what Dave was asking is saying that everybody in the Democratic Party has agreed uh, with with Bernie Sanders that there's far too much money uh, going on with political spending, yeah. uh, and therefore, how come that Hillary's the front runner, considering that all Democrats agree? Got any views on that, Taylor? Well, well, I mean, they agree publicly. I don't know if they agree in their heart of hearts, you know, that uh, there's too much money in politics. But I think right now the too much money in politics refrain is very popular, so it's not uh, surprising that they would say it. I mean, even Republicans are getting in on that same issue. Uh, a lot of the Republican uh, candidates have raised the issue of income inequality and wealth inequality uh, because I think it's, it's uh, you know, it uh, resonates with people right now. Yeah, it, it does seem to be that... Um... I mean, one of the ironies, I suppose, is the judgment about Citizens United is actually the Democrats were able to raise far more money even than the Conservatives were. So uh, actually, strangely, it suits the Democratic Party to uh, to have a free-for-all when it comes to money because they're pretty good at raising money, particularly on uh, on both coasts. Whereas, oh, yeah, I mean, if, yeah. if Hillary and Bill have proved anything, is that they're, they're very, very good at raising money. Yeah, and... Uh, 
whereas the Conservatives depend upon a small number of uh, very rich men, uh, yeah. the Democratic Party uh, depends upon a, a great number of very rich people. So it's uh, maybe maybe the argument is, uh, as, as you quite rightly point out, that in reality it's rather different from it is in theory. But I'm sure that the uh, the sort of grassroots of the Democrats are appalled that uh, the money is actually dictating the race. Let's just go back to Hillary Clinton for a minute. The uh, this uh, Clinton cash book is just the oh. latest of uh, this succession of, uh, of irritating events, including the email scandal, Benghazi, oh. and all sorts of things. Uh, what do you make of them? Do you, are, they, are these real scandals or are they imagined? Is this just heavy pounding from the conservatives or actually is there something, is there something they're trying to hide there? Uh, well, I guess it depends on which one you're talking about and also how she responds to it. I think the Benghazi investigation was fairly, fairly uh, – Complete, and I don't think anything really came of that. Um, the email scandal, I think, was I think reporters were more upset about that than the general public was. Um, I think reporters sort of uh, are more aware of, of the laws that govern um, you know politicians and, and their communications, and so were upset when they learned that these emails were gone. Um, I think the, this this Clinton cash scandal. I think depending on how she handles it, it could develop into a larger scandal. Uh, but currently, she seems to be doing a pretty good job. She said, or rather, the foundation, the Clinton Foundation, uh, said that it would refile some of its taxes and go back and look at some of these questions uh, about foreign donors that it did not uh, publicly acknowledge, even though uh, it signed an agreement with the Obama administration uh, promising that it would acknowledge all foreign donors. Yeah. Uh, but she seems to. I think. I think the way she's handling it and has handled these past scandals uh, indicates that probably nothing will come of it. I mean, who knows though? Uh, when the campaign really starts to ramp up uh, and the debates happen, and you know the attack ads come out, if these things don't reemerge. Do you think they're trying to knock her off before she even gets going? Is that the that why they're throwing everything at her right now? Uh, I mean, that would be that would be a smart move. I think. Um, I think her fundraising apparatus is such that if you really let her start to run, then it's going to be hard to catch up ever. Um, but, I mean, I, I think they they will continue to knock at her from now until November 2016 and just hope whatever, you know, to land whatever hits they can. Okay. Now I understand that Dave from Humboldt County is uh, now on the line. So, Dave? Well, we'll give it another try. Are we connected? Yes, we are. Yeah, just fire away. What's, what's you your question me? for Taylor? Yes, we can hear you cl- loud and clear. Dave, what's your question? This whole idea that Bernie is unelectable. I'm on hundreds, I deal with hundreds of people on national chat rooms. And I think Bernie speaks for most all of us. That is to say, we don't believe in massive tax cuts for the very, very rich. We feel quite sympathetic to the gay people, and if they want to marry, that's cool. We feel we'd like to end the wars. Everything that Bernie is about, most Americans are about. So the idea of just saying, well, he's unelectable, no. Everybody that wants him, if they vote for him, he's going to be elected two times over. I'm speaking to a lot of people that I'm in contact with right now. Mm-hmm. I think it will be, I mean, I think it will be a very interesting primary because I think it will definitively show, which is more important in, in American democracy, uh, money or, you know, popular sentiment. Because I think a lot of people, especially in the Democratic Party, tend to agree with you, uh, and you know they would they would probably prefer uh, a Bernie Sanders to a Hillary Clinton. Indeed, I, I'm convinced of it. That is to say, everybody that I speak to is saying just that. That man is saying what we need. Did he ever said? That's mm-hmm. what we need in our White House. 
Does it worry you that he hasn't uh, run for any big office like this before, Dave? I mean, there is some skills involved in this sort of thing, isn't there? And, and a lot of energy, too. And, he, uh, you know, he, look, he looks pretty relaxed to me. He's very sharp. He's quick with his... He sees clearly what he... He responds to the questions that are put to him intelligently. Okay, great, Dave. Thanks for your call. We'll be back after the break. So, welcome back to the Martin Show. This is uh, Nicholas Hotshot. I'm opinion editor of Newsweek magazine, and I'm standing in for Leslie, who is enjoying a well-deserved break. And uh, we've got to uh, thank you very much, uh, by the way, to Taylor Wofford, who held up that first half hour, and also for Dave calling in from Humboldt County. Uh, now, we've got a, a very interesting guy called Daniel Beer, who's the editor of the Anything Peaceful blog at the Foundation for Economic Education. And he wrote a very interesting piece, which uh, ran on their site, but also ran on Newsweek.com. And it's about uh, the death penalty, which has suddenly come into the news again. Uh, you would have thought that nothing much changes in terms of attitudes to uh, death penalty. But, uh, Daniel, maybe you just bring us up to date on where we were. Things have been moving, haven't they? Uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Nichols. Um, yeah, uh, it's, uh, we've actually reached a, a historic low in support for capital punishment, uh, at least in the United States in, in recent history. Uh, in 1995, uh, support for the death penalty uh, among the public at large was about six to one in favor of uh, using the death penalty. Uh, on on violent uh, criminals, usually murderers and uh, other uh, uh, severe uh, severe crimes, uh, and it has dropped uh, substantially since since the mid '90s at the peak of the crime wave, uh, and now we're we're all the way down to support for capital punishment being uh, only two to one. About 66 percent uh, of the country currently supports. Uh, the death penalty, uh, and so that's the, the support is still overwhelming, but the trend is is definitely down. And how would you explain this? Is there, is there any issues, any events that have changed this, or is it just demographic? The fact is that uh, maybe older people used to hold on to certainties in the way that younger people are just more generous about these things. What's your explanation? Well. Um, I'd say that my explanation is is that it's probably due to the drop in crime. Uh, over the last two decades, we've seen uh, the murder rate uh, and the violent crime rate overall drop by about half uh, since its peak in the early 1990s. Uh, and so uh, as, as crime becomes something that, that happens to other people rather than something that people see every day, um, uh, support for the death penalty uh, goes down. I mean, that's. I'm sure there's many other things that are going on, but I have to think that the uh, the decline in in violent crime and property crime uh, in the United States, the massive and underreported decline in crime, uh, has to be driving uh, a lot of this shift in public opinion. Uh, and you suggest in your uh, fine piece that maybe those who oppose the death penalty uh, have sort of moral qualms about it. That is, that they don't think that the state ought to take human life in any form and that 
so-called punishment should be left to God. Whereas on the other side, people think that uh, they're, they're looking for real punishment. The fact is, you know, an eye for an eye stuff. It's, a, it's, it's very sort of Old Testament, which part of the Ten Commandments versus an eye for an eye uh, wins out. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of the time when we talk about the death penalty, we hear people debating, you know, how much it costs, and it is very costly, or, or whether it deters crime, you know, these sort of utilitarian uh, explanations about what, what we can accomplish by using the death penalty or what it costs us to use the death penalty. Um, but I think that this is actually kind of a, a red herring because most of the support and most of the opposition – uh, to the death penalty comes from moral considerations about whether it's it's just wrong to take a life when you don't have to, um, or whether it's it's about uh, retribution against people who who have it coming. You know, people who took life deserve to lose their own lives, uh, and this is the overwhelming majority of the support uh, for the death penalty comes from these sort of. Uh, biblical or retributive uh, ideas of retributive justice. You know, they, they yeah, deserve it. They have it coming. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that in Western Europe, which is not such a dissimilar uh, civilization to American civilization, uh, they've long ago abandoned the death penalty. In fact, if you're a member of the European Union, you may not uh, use the death penalty to the extent that even if you have a, 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 a terrorist, a known terrorist, you may not extradite them to the United States lest they be executed here. So it, it's sort of... Uh, it's an interesting twist, isn't it, on this, that, uh, that the Europeans are, would you say, ahead of us in this? I mean, do you think the, the pendulum is going to move one way and then never come back, which is what happened in Europe? Uh, it, it certainly does look like that. Um, you know, if, if we saw some sort of, sort of dramatic reversal uh, in, in crime rates, I, I think that you would probably see uh, an uptick in support for the death penalty. But the trend over the last, you know, a uh, few decades and even longer than that uh, is towards abolishing the death penalty. Uh, it started, you know, all over Europe uh, in the latter half of the 20th century and in some places before that. And in the United States, you know, 18 states have now abolished the death penalty. And a lot of the states that technically have it um, just choose not to exercise it. Um, so and, you know, public opinion has been strongly shifting away from support for, for execution. Uh, so I think that you know, that, that really is where we're headed. Um, I, I can't fully explain the difference um, between the United States and Western Europe. I think part of it is, is cultural and religious. The United States is, is a more religious country. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is uh, some, there's some correlation between uh, religiosity and support for the death penalty, uh, with the exception of um, some denominations like Catholics with, who are strongly anti-death penalty, uh, and many of the people that I work with are, are strongly, strongly religious, um, but, but uh, are actually opposed to the death penalty because of their beliefs. But we do, we do seem to be moving in that direction where um, we are finding you know, uh, fewer and fewer good reasons to continue executions uh, and stronger and stronger reasons to get rid of it. And so it, it seems to be just a ratchet that works in one direction. Once states abolish the death penalty, they're very unlikely to bring it back. Yeah.
So uh, just to remind you that we're talking to uh, – my name is Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, uh, standing in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, Daniel Beer is the editor of the Anything Peaceful blog at the Foundation for Economic Education, which I recommend to you. Always original thoughts, uh, always fresh thoughts to make you uh, think again even about topics that you thought that you settled your views on. So, uh, Daniel, thank you very much for that. There, there, uh, what do you make of the Supreme Court who are having to decide uh, any minute uh, – about whether the means of uh, committing the death penalty is a cruel and un- unnecessary punishment under the Constitution. As you know, there have been a, a great number of uh, miserable deaths, protracted deaths, uh, w- with using uh, chemicals in order to inject into people to kill them, and that uh, some of these have gone on for m- many, many minutes. I mean, plainly, the person is writhing in agony. What, what do you think the Supreme Court's going to say about that in the end? Um, you know, I, uh, predicting the Supreme Court is is, is just uh, you know a, a fool's a fool's errand. You know, it's a mug's game. Um, but I, you know, what you're talking about is is very interesting because we've gotten to a point now where uh, lethal injection is the most popular, uh, which is kind of a, a morbid idea, a most popular way to kill people in, in this country. Um, if you're going to have um, uh, the death penalty in your state, people prefer that it be um, through lethal injection, this cocktail of of drugs that, uh, you know, first paralyzes the person uh, and then kills them. Um, however, it, and it sort of has this sort of clinical feel, you know, like this is a medical procedure. You strap people down, you stick an, an IV into their arm, and then they just sort of fade away, or that's the idea, uh, except that you know, the drugs that they use, um, it, there is no longer any legitimate source for the cocktail of drugs that are most commonly used for lethal injections. Uh, activists have pressured drug companies to stop supplying this drug uh, to states to kill people with uh, under ethical concerns. Uh, and so states have turned to essentially the black market. Uh, they are going around and and purchasing these drugs on the black market so that they can continue to execute people with them. Um, and this raises all sorts of legal and ethical and constitutional concerns. Um, and uh, w- the response of some states has been to pass laws which did, which uh, create official secrecy around the source and the kinds of the drugs that are being used to kill people, um, which is you're not even allowed to know how people are dying. And so it's kind of hard to know well, is this actually going to kill someone if you give this to them, or is it just going to torture them for hours and hours and hours, which yeah. is uh, what has happened in, in some states. Yeah when, the, so, when the, yeah, when the state gets into, or any state gets into a position where it's killing people without explaining exactly how it's doing it, we're, it, we're right on the edge of a Kafka-like uh, territory. Anyway, we're going to come back to this subject uh, very, very shortly after a couple of minutes. Uh, Daniel, just stay on the line, and uh, we'll see the other side of the break. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Okay, welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is 
I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine, and I have with me Daniel Beer, who is a, a great blogger, Anything Peaceful blog at the Foundation for Economic Education. And we're talking about the death penalty. If you're tuned in for Leslie Marshall, she's uh, enjoying a well-earned vacation. Uh, you've got me instead. And so, Daniel, uh, it's, you raised some interesting things in your uh, fine uh, article about uh, the death penalty uh, because – we were, we've just been talking about the moral difficulties uh, on one side or the other. Both, both sides uh, take uh, different uh, stances on this. But there are good practical reasons, aren't there, why it turns out uh, it's a very rash thing to take somebody's life. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say that um, that's, a, that's a bit of an understatement, actually, uh, particularly when the stakes are, are so grave. So uh, a lot of the time when we talk about the death penalty, we're talking about how much it costs or whether it deters crime. But in reality, most people uh, either support or oppose the death penalty because of their moral beliefs, whether it's wrong to take a life or whether some people deserve to die. Um, and I think that there's a, actually a way to get around um, this, you know, sort of just intractable conflict of, well, I believe this and I believe that. Uh, I, and there's, there's, a, there's a simple way that we can all come to an agreement on this, which is that we all agree, even if some people deserve to die, innocent people, it's very, very important that the state not kill innocent people. Um, and since the death penalty was uh, uh, re-legalized by the Supreme Court in 1976, uh, the United States has executed uh, over 1,400 people. Uh, but meanwhile, over 152 people have been exonerated and released from death row. Uh, so that means that we are you know, our, our batting average here is not very high. You know, we, we, are, we are executing 10 people for every one innocent person that we sentence to death. Um, and so, that, you know, that means that for every 10 people we're executing, we're, we're letting one walk free from death row because he was wrongfully convicted. Um, and that is, you know, I think that it's just inconceivable to believe that all of those 1,400 people that we have executed, they were all innocent. I mean, that, or, I'm sorry, that they were all guilty, that we know absolutely, uh, so confidently that we are willing to, to take a life. Uh, and so I think that it's, there's just a, a way around this sort of intractable moral question, which is that practically, uh, who gets to decide who lives and dies? Even if some people do deserve to die, should we trust our criminal justice system to find out who that is? And we have found out 152 times in the last uh, three decades that the criminal justice system got it wrong, that they sent people to die who were innocent. Um, and I think that that, you know, that that should get people's attention, regardless of whether or not, regardless of their moral beliefs about, you know, an eye for an eye or, or whether some people do deserve to die. That makes uh, absolute sense to me, I must say. The, I mean, there have been recent cases, haven't there? Maybe you tell us a bit about the Brooklyn guy who was uh, convicted of murder, but uh, the judge ordered his release, having spent 20 years in prison because of what the judge called deeply flawed detective work. Tell us a bit about that case. Uh, yeah, so there was a, there was a case um, last month uh, in, in New York City uh, where a man was uh, uh, convicted of murder, and sentenced to uh, he was not he was not sentenced to death, uh, but he was convicted of murder, uh, and he was ordered uh, released by a judge after 20 years in prison, more than 20 years in prison, um, because of uh, 
what she called deeply flawed detective work that undermines our judicial system. And this was the result of, he was actually the sixth person so far that has been released from prison uh, as a result of um, this uh, one detective in the NYPD uh, who is alleged to have fabricated confessions and fixed lineups, basically told witnesses who to pick out of a police lineup, uh, and then used the witness identification in order to get a conviction. Or, uh, or reported that the, the, the suspect confessed under interrogation. Um, and, uh, and then the, uh, the suspect later denied ever having said anything to him. Um, but uh, on his word alone that there was a confession, uh, people, were, people were sent to, sent to prison. And so uh, this has all come out in the last few years. And uh, there have been dozens of murder investigations that have been reopened as a result of just this one person uh, who made or who is alleged to have made some very serious ethical breaches. Um, and so can you imagine if, if this man had been sentenced to death as a result of being declared a murderer based on this one person's uh, uh, detective work, um, if he had been sentenced to death, he very likely would have been killed by now. Um, and there's no one doing that. There's no, there's no way to go back. There's no way to compensate someone for that. That is the most severe punishment that can be inflicted by the state. Um, and we have good reason to believe that our criminal justice system is just not good enough to, uh, you know, get it right 100% of the time. Uh, and, you know, soon after that, there was a man in Alabama uh, who was sent, uh, convicted of murder and sentenced to die on the basis of um, extremely flawed forensic uh, testimony. And he was released after 30 years in prison. Um, and, but, you know, as, as terrible as it is to have sent an innocent man to prison for 30 years on the basis of, of, of lousy CSI, um, you know, it, it would be infinitely worse to, to have killed him, um, which is what a lot of death penalty advocates uh, say we should be doing faster every time we bring up the, someone brings up the cost of, of, um, of the death penalty, which is it's extremely expensive to kill people because of all the appeals. Um, you know, California has spent $4 billion in the last uh, three decades to execute just 13 people. And so death penalty advocates say, well, we should just be executing them faster. Well, we, we've seen people exonerated 10, 20, 30 years after uh, their convictions and sentences. Uh, and, and, you know, I just don't think that being more hasty uh, about, about killing people is, is the answer to what's wrong with the death penalty. And there are, there are other dimensions to this, aren't there? Apparently there are 3,000 people awaiting execution in America at the moment. Uh, they are predominantly African-Americans, aren't they? Uh, dis disproportionately so, yes. Um, disproportionately, yeah, which, which can't yeah, help. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we, if we have racial tensions in this country, which we do, just look at Baltimore regularly uh, through the last year, the, the tensions are just below the surface. The fact that... Uh, there is a disproportionate racial tinge to uh, the ultimate penalty. It can't help. Yeah, no, uh, you're you're absolutely right about that. Um, and there's a uh, a Supreme Court case, uh, not terribly well known, uh, called uh, McCluskey uh, versus Kemp in 1987, um, and in which the Supreme Court ruled that Georgia's application of the death penalty 
didn't violate uh, the equal protection rights under the Constitution uh, of, uh, of the people who were sentenced to death, uh, despite admitting that racism very clearly played a substantial role in determining who received the death penalty. By admitting that, uh, you know, a, if a black defendant, and particularly a black defendant who, who killed a white person or is accused to have killed a white person, uh, is far more likely to be, to be sentenced to death uh, than the reverse. Absolutely. And, uh, we got a, we, sorry, just hold on a minute, uh, Daniel. We've got John, who's from New York City, who's called in. He's got a, he wants to make a point. John, what's your point? I think it's really hard um, to, to not look at information these days. Back in 1995, when you know, this stuff was going on, it was harder to, to obtain information. People were still using antiquated ways. Uh, now we've got all the information in, in the world in our, in our phones. So if you have a certain kind of critical mindset, you can look up these things, and you know it's a lot easier to be well informed now than it was, you know, ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, very good point, uh, very crisp point too, uh, for which I'm most grateful because we are uh, coming to the end of this segment. Daniel, thank you very much indeed. First of all, for writing this great piece, thank you for articulating it so clearly to our listeners, and uh, let's hope we may have you back on an, again on another day. Thank you very much indeed. That's Daniel Beer from the Foundation for Economic Education. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show. The only true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. So welcome or welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, Leslie is enjoying a well-deserved break at the moment. And I am Nicholas Wapshot and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine. And I'm very glad to have with me uh, to talk about absolutely the hottest issue that you could possibly talk about right now, which is the spate of violence that has been going on in uh, Baltimore as a result of uh, the uh, killing uh, I won't go into the full detail of it because I don't want to prejudge anything. But anyway, the killing of, of one citizen. The, an, another one today, uh, which under rather different circumstances, has reawoken the whole notion of uh, – and the, highlight the problem of what exactly is going on in Baltimore. And here to try to explain uh, at least one very interesting aspect of, uh, of what happens when you have to investigate policemen in these very difficult circumstances uh, is Walter Olson, who's the senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, he's written many books about the legal system, and he's also the author of the blog Overlawyer.com. So, Walter, very welcome to us. Uh, thank you. Um, now, we thought that Baltimore had gone away, at least that over the weekend that, uh, that the violence has subsided, but, but it, another issue has brought it right back into focus again. Uh, what do you really think? I mean, let's take general terms for a start. Uh, what's been going on in the last year is a whole succession of uh, well, that's dubious killings by uh, police of, uh, of citizens in circumstances where it seems that uh, justice doesn't seem to be uh, practiced as clearly as it should be. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, you, you've, you've seen killings by police 
nationwide, including the uh, Eric Garner uh, uh, killing in Staten Island and, and many others that, that listeners will know. Baltimore has a special history, a, a um, especially brutal and corrupt history, if I can say that. And I, I live in Maryland, um, uh, very well investigated by the Baltimore Sun, the local newspaper, in a series recently. Um, and this goes back, uh, it's not just a matter of the last uh, mayor or two. This, this goes back for decades. Uh, it is a culture, unfortunately, of um, almost every type of po- uh, police misconduct from uh, roughing up people that they take into custody to uh, shaking down uh, the people to participating in, in, in crimes themselves. And this blew up a couple years ago uh, with a scandal at the Baltimore jail, which happens to be run by the state of Maryland, but it is part of uh, the Baltimore legal scene. And uh, and this was one of the first places that we got to the issue that, that we'll talk about here, which is how difficult it is to do anything about bad cops. Because one of the reasons the jail scandal got so bad was that all of these uh, guards and other staffers were on the inside. They, they were uh, cooperating with the, the gangs running the prison. And Maryland has something. It was the very first state in the country that passed something called the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. And that says that if you are going to uh, uh, consider discipline against uh, someone charged with misconduct, whether it be brutality or otherwise, uh, they get all sorts of rights. And the more you look into these rights, the more the, the jaw drops. Because, um, they, for example, uh, in effect, they don't have to answer any questions for the first 10 days after the brutality or whatever the incident is. Um, that's just the start. The, the um, uh, their lawyer can be there. They can see the evidence against them uh, before they have to come up with an answer. And, of course, the, you don't have to be too cynical to think that uh, 10 days is a long time. If someone has done something wrong, they can compare stories with other cops. They can figure out what the evidence is and then shape their story to get around it. This is exactly why uh, investigating one of these things. You want to get someone's story on the record right away before they have a chance to uh, come up with something clever. Uh, and you can't do that uh, with the set of rules that they lobbied for. And, and when I say lobbied, uh, this passed through the legislature because the police lobby is really, really strong, not just in Maryland, but many other states too. Yeah, so the, it's the police union doing what a lot of people would say the teachers' union does, that they put their own careers and their own safety and their own staying out of trouble ahead of their customers, which for teachers, well, of course, I, is pupils. I but in this case, tenure, um, it's mm. a system in which you, the union does its job, which is to go to bat for someone who's in danger of losing their jobs. You know, it's bad enough when someone gets uh, transferred out of the classroom to an administrative job where they may not be doing uh, much good in, on the teacher's side. In the cop side, on the other hand, you've got people uh, you know, who may have killed someone or who may have uh, uh, you know, b- uh, brutalized them and uh, may have to be put right back uh, on the job, but may uh, become part of that police culture with lots and lots of power over the citizens. And 
the way this has been used um, should have been a scandal before now. Instead, it's spreading to other states. More than a dozen other states also have these Bill of Rights laws, and when they don't have them uh, at the state level, uh, cities have them, sometimes unions negotiate them. But you will find in especially big city uh, police departments around the country these same problems coming up again and again, which is um, uh, they know who some of the bad cops are, and they can't lay a finger on them because um, the, the processes have made two owners. You know, this came as a great surprise to me when I read it because to actually pass into law something which sort of institutionalizes bad practice is astonishing, isn't it? And it's so very different. I mean, one of the keys to a, a proper civilized society is the, the rule of law, which means that everybody is treated exactly the same under the law. But, of course, what you're pointing out is that police officers are in these 20 states, at least, protected by the law in a way that a regular person, you and me, if we were arrested, we wouldn't have that benefit, would we? Well, there was a wonderful blog post last week comparing what happens in an interrogation of an ordinary suspect uh, with what happens in the interrogation of uh, a suspect who happens to be a cop, and everything is turned upside down. Uh, you know, the, um, in order to get as many confessions as possible, uh, police knows that they want to use techniques like multiple interrogators, because you'll tell one person something that you wouldn't tell another, uh, interrogations that those people off by doing it in an unusual location. So you look at the uh, Maryland uh, Bill of Rights for Police Officers, and it carefully rules out every single one of these. It says there can only be one interrogator. Uh, it has to take place at the most comfortable location for the person being accused. Um, there has to be an eyewitness complaint. And, you know, the more people have been discussing this, the more they realize it's just a matter of time until you've got someone who was caught on, let's say, closed-circuit videotape, and they saw the beating happen, and no one is entitled to complain because there's no eyewitness. Um, or uh, a complaint signed by a uh, living relative of the person that was killed by police action. Well, one of these days, they're going to kill someone who has no living relatives to, to complain for them. So it is written by and for the guilty parties or the potentially guilty parties. It's astonishing, and it, it sort of goes back to the Magna Carta, too, because apparently they can't even reveal whether the cop is being investigated. Well, this is one of the problems that has come up in many cases around the country, which is for days after uh, an incident where someone's killed by the police, uh, you uh, can't even get the name of the officer. Uh, and in Virginia, this was taken to um, an incredible extreme. More than a year went by before the Fairfax County Police Department finally admitted who pulled the trigger to kill a man who was standing in his doorway arguing with police when he was shot. And... Uh, in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, of course, it um, increased tensions tremendously that they waited for days uh, before revealing that. <clears throat> so many of these rights come back to uh, this obscure, successful lobbying. Another one that really bothers me is uh, they cannot be charged with misconduct. And again, this is all in job discipline. You, conceivably, they could be prosecuted, which is a separate track. But as far as losing their job, um, it has to be a recent incident which means that if someone doesn't get together the uh, folder of evidence to be able to file a complaint until whatever the deadline is, maybe six months, it's pretty pretty soon, um, you know, it's a pretty close deadline, um, then the person just gets away with it scot-free as far as uh, being able to keep their, uh, their job and all of its benefits. So in Baltimore, anyway, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake said that uh, 
one of the problems, she actually called out the LEOBR, the LIBOR law, for frustrating the investigation into the death of Freddie Gray. And there's no doubt you can imagine that on the streets there's amazing anger because the cops are somehow protected from a, a proper investigation. Not, not only a proper, but a timely investigation, which is also very important with crime. Well, yes, and, and a thorough investigation. And the... Uh, you know, the mayor has been criticized um, uh, in some ways, but I give her credit because even before the Freddie Gray case, she was speaking out because in earlier instances of police misconduct, she said they'd run into the same problem. Uh, it, it comes up again and again. And so she went to the Maryland legislature along with the ACLU, which has been very active on this. Um, and they laid out the evidence and they said, uh, look, we're happy to compromise. We don't even want to repeal the whole law. We just want to make it a little um, you know, more realistic about not enabling bad cops. And unfortunately, that's when the story turns bad, which is uh, they sent them away. They, uh, the police lobby is very powerful in both the Democratic and the Republican Party, um, in Maryland at least. And I think you'll find that in many other states too. And they got nowhere. Yes, absolutely. Now we've got a, a time for a quick call from Michael, who's in the Bronx, who's on line five. Michael, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? A lot of what's being said is uh, by uh, my guest, as uh, Walter Alston, is no surprise to you by the sound of it. Absolutely not. Here in New York State, it's been the same godforsaken garbage in which, first off, what you said about ten, a 10 day rule of silence, there's been a 40 day hour rule here, but that was um, totally dismantled because of what you said about the. Um, the orchestrating of cover-ups. The thing I have a problem with is that I'm going on record and say nobody, nobody, nobody is above the law, all right, even police officers. And I'm sick and tired of some of these right-wingers and these police union heads that want to put cops above the law. I understand it's the union's job to protect the police officers as far as their careers go, but it's another thing when you've got police union heads like the one we have here in New York City, namely Patrick Lynch, that's going to tell police officers to go on out and stop every single uh, protest that goes on and uh, come up with false charges of disorderly conduct just to silence the message. I mean, people have a right to protest. Your job is to protect the cops on the internal basis. What the hell are you doing going on the external and making um, legitimate peaceful protesters the enemy? You're telling cops to engage in illegal, unlawful, unconstitutional actions just to pursue your own agenda? Apparently, that's what's happening here. We had it with Lynch. Yeah. We've had it with yeah. um, Rudy Giuliani, a former New York City uh, mayor. And I know, I just know that there are other mayors and governors on the Republican side that are using and misusing police officers for the same damn purpose. So wouldn't you Okay, Michael, that that you, you've made your point very well, and I'm most grateful to you. We've got to go to break now. We'll be back with Walter Olson after the break, and we will resume this fascinating conversation about the way that uh, cops are protected from the usual uh, means of uh, system of justice. Thanks very much. Leslie Marshall, The Simple Truth in a Complicated World, 888-6-LESLIE.
Okay, so welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. Leslie's taking a break. My name's Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine. And I have with me uh, Walter Olson, who's the senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. We're talking about the the extraordinary laws that actually uh, allow cops to hide behind whatever, in order to avoid proper justice. Uh, He's written a very interesting piece about this on the Cato Institute site. You can also read it on the Newsweek site. Uh, It's worth reading in full. I'm glad that you're still with me, Walter. Uh, Tell me, you said 20 different states had very similar laws to Maryland. How how does that work? I mean, where are they? I mean, 20 states, it's, you know... It's it's, um, state's law is a little bit different, and... Um, the number, is, if not at 20, is, is, is close to it by now. These things get passed often with very little controversy. I noted that last year, for example, in Pennsylvania, the uh, legislature, or the, half of it, uh, unanimously passed one of these things. And I thought, why on earth, if they, only, if they knew how these operated, how could it be unanimous? It's because they aren't debated. Uh, you know, they, uh, every politician likes to pose as being uh, anti-crime, which they think means... Um, you know, listen to the, uh, the the police and the district attorney uh, community for for cues on how to vote. It, it, it's not that simple. And I, the caller earlier from the Bronx made a, a wonderful point about how the police must not be above the law. And you um, pointed out that we are at the anniversary of Magna Carta, which stands for that principle. Um, you know, the, the police have some legitimate points to make here. For example, there are a lot of bogus claims made against them, and we all know that. You know, people make lots and lots of bogus claims. We can't just accept all of them. But at the same time, um, we also can't enable cover-ups and basically live as an honor system, because we know now how an honor system works out where they, they, they have to just correct their own misbehavior, which is that often it doesn't happen. Uh, I'm sorry about that. It looks like we're just having a a technical problem, so Nicholas is going to hop right back on. Um, This is Mark, the executive producer. Could you um, tell me a little bit more about, obviously, uh, in addition to to Freddie Gray, there's been some instances this year where this has come up. Um, Could you tell me a little bit more about what drove you to write this piece and had it been something on your mind, you know, prior to to Baltimore? Yeah, I had been... Uh, should I save that for the radio, or just tell you now? You mean? Oh no, you can say you can say it right on air. We're still right on air. Oh, okay. Um, the, I had been watching this because, in case after case, um, Ferguson in the one I mentioned in Fairfax County, Virginia, uh, different parts of this had kept on um, driving the public crazy. You know, why couldn't they get the information? Uh, why was the system so bad at um, correcting uh, some of the worst? Misbehavior, and the, um, but I live in Maryland, and uh, when the fight began uh, uh, that I mentioned, where uh, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake said, uh, "Look, we we were the first state to pass this. We need to be the first state to um, you know rethink it." Uh, and I thought, "All right, uh, um, I've been waiting for this to happen because it's time that we rethought it," and that was. Uh, followed up by the terrible, terrible um, uh, Freddie Gray episode, which has transfixed us ever since, uh, and which um, resulted on Friday in the indictment of six Baltimore cops. And uh, according to the earlier news stories, uh, five of the six cops had given statements and uh, cooperated at least somewhat. Uh, One of them, who may have been the driver charged with the worst charges, 
uh, was not viewed as cooperative. But what really got me was the police union guy from Baltimore told the Baltimore Sun that they're lucky they got those statements before I got involved. And I, I just slapped my head. I thought, uh, you know, in a sense, he's doing his job in keeping them from giving, you know, full statements. But what on earth does that say about the system? You know, if he had managed to get in there earlier, we wouldn't even have as much information about how Freddie Gray died as we do now. No, that's a great point, Walter. And we actually have Nicholas back. The technical problem is gone. Nicholas, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so uh, what do you see an end to this, Walter? As you pointed out, uh, actually both Republicans and Democrats pile in behind these sorts of laws. It's very difficult not to uh, allow the police to have their own way in this sense because everybody's behind the police, you know, in the same way they were behind all armed forces. So can you see a way of diffusing this and going back on the... We'll actually uh, have you answer that after the break, Walter, just because we're coming up on a break here. Okay, so welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. We've just uh, got to finish up with Walter because I cut him off a bit earlier. Uh, Walter Olson, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. You've been talking about the problems in Baltimore, but it extends to other states, maybe as many as 20 other states, where there are special laws that protect the police in a way that uh, ordinary citizens aren't uh, uh, protected from proper, clear, timely investigation. Can you see a good way that this can be brought to an end? We mentioned how bipartisanship worked in a bad way uh, because the Democrats and Republicans competed with each other to be more pro-law and order and pro-cop and so forth. Uh, I see bipartisanship kind of moving into reverse because you know how they say that you know the people lead and the politicians eventually follow. You know, public opinion has been educated very fast the last six months about how many bad problems there are here, and I see opinion changing in both parties. You see, on the Democratic side, you, you see figures like Hillary Clinton, who are always closely identified with more cops on the street, um, you know, longer sentences. Uh, she's changing her tune. On the Republican side, you've got people like Rand Paul openly challenging what you could not challenge within the Republican Party until uh, last year or two. So, yeah, I see progress. I I think we're actually going to start winning some of these battles. That's good news. And then we'll see less events such as we're watching right now in Baltimore. Thank you very much. I'm I'm most grateful for your time and your your great and crisp and original take on what is otherwise a a subject which has been talked out in all directions. So thank you very much again. Now, my next guest is Miriam Burry, who is the Associate Professor of Sociology at Bentley University, which is in Waltham, Massachusetts. And she's got a fascinating thing. She's, first of all, she's an expert on uh, drug use, uh, and, uh, which, of course, is immensely commonplace. And she has a book called Women on Ice, Met- Methamphetamine Use Among Suburban Women. But she wrote a very interesting piece, uh, which we ran on the Newsweek site, uh, newsweek.com, uh, which is questioning whether marijuana is a gateway drug. And I, I guess the co- conventional wisdom, Miriam, is that indeed it is a gateway drug in that you start off with a little bit of grass and the next thing you know, you're on smack or something terrible. Is that right? Uh, well, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me for this interview. And I know you want to talk about my article on marijuana not being the gateway drug. However, I would like to address some other important issues 
And if you'll just give me a, a minute, I believe it's very important for the Baltimore uh, situation that's going on right now. Uh, we, as a nation, in financial recovery, must stop wasting taxpayer money on the war on drugs, on the DEA, and mass incarceration. And instead, we must fund social recovery initiatives to undo the damage that these have done to the American families and to the American communities. These are my goals as an applied sociologist, and I hope the media can help toward these goals. One, stop the war on drugs. Two, the DEA must be dismantled. Three, the racial disparities of mass incarceration must stop now. So those are my goals, and now you can ask your questions if you'd like. Well, that's fine. No, I'm very glad, Miriam, because you've put it into a much broader context, which I was going to do it the other way around, starting off with marijuana's gateway drug and then ending up on it. You know, plainly yeah. the war on drugs has failed. So uh, what should we be doing about it? It's done immense damage, too, to society, hasn't it? And uh, a lot of the sort of violence on the streets we're seeing and the, uh, and the disenchantment with society that so many groups have in this country is entirely to do with the fact that uh, uh, draconian laws have been passed against drug users, and they've been used in an arbitrary way, which has been very partisan and particularly racially partisan, and that's caused uh, the things that we were talking about much earlier, about the death penalty. Very large numbers of particular communities finding themselves not only banged up for decade upon decade, but also on death row very often for, for crimes which uh, just it's, – it's, the punishment is – completely out of proportion to, uh, to the, the crime, even indeed if it was a crime in the first place, such as taking around a small bag of weed with you, which doesn't strike me as the worst thing you could do. Uh, but, but let's go back. Let's, so sure. let's, let's, we'll, we'll end up there, but let, let's okay. just start. I think that the, the, the common wisdom would be, and certainly until relatively recently, was this sense that uh, it, marijuana was a slippery slope, and that if you, you, know, you just had a couple of toots as a teenager in the back of a car and you know before you knew where you were you were uh, you're going through the whole checklist uh, of all the drugs in in sort of descent uh, into a, a sort of abyss where you'd never get out and uh, your research suggests that this is uh, not true so tell no, me about it's, that it's not at all and, and marijuana is not a gateway drug and and just talking about it probably keeps this myth alive when it's been discredited years ago the reason it is still talked about is because some politicians find it useful, and some researchers and treatment professionals can profit by keeping it as part of the, dis of the discussion. It is based on what statisticians call a significant correlation. And correlation, even when one event always precedes the other, like marijuana might precede all hard drugs, which it doesn't always, but even that does not prove causation. And drug use, especially illegal drug use, has so many other influences that a simple correlation does not do much to establish a simple cause. Basing anything as socially complex as drug use on statistics is harmful and misleading. And uh, you probably know, statisticians, they do their number studies in a private office in a lab that someone else collected for them, and most statisticians never meet the people they study or anyone like them. This is a so, huge problem. If you are not listening to the people that you're studying and you're only writing about them, you will miss a lot. And so what so, I do so is I go out sorry, so into there, the places. Mm -hmm. so, so, so there are two things about marijuana. First of all, mm -hmm. I would, I would uh, suggest that, first of all, uh, it, it doesn't lead on to anything else because actually the vast majority of people who smoked weed have only ever smoked weed. And it's living proof of the fact that they're not heroin addicts. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is probably you know the the main reason not even to talk about it as a as a. Uh, a gateway drug. But what I have found when I go out into the field and I listen to people, and I've been doing this for 15 years, is that marijuana helps stop drug use and it helps stop hard drug use that we don't want people to get into. So many people, yes, because of the social environment, they might eventually go to hard drugs if they start with marijuana, but not all of them, of course. And many of them stop hard drugs because of marijuana because we know already that marijuana has medicinal uses. And one of them is to stop other hard drugs. But are we allowed to do that? No, because it's a Schedule One drug. Is there a problem here because, I mean, you've done a great deal of research, but there hasn't been enough research into marijuana use. Is that right? Uh, oh, absolutely, because as a Schedule One drug, it's very hard to, to get money or, or any funding for doing this kind of research. So most of us that have done this research have gotten money from, um, from marijuana research. I got it from my uh, university, and others get it from activist groups. They're just now beginning to fund ma- uh, good marijuana research. Before they that, would start, they were always yeah, just... the, the harms of marijuana research. Yeah, it strikes me as bizarre because uh, rather like uh, marriage equality and, uh, and very other, uh, other social movements like that, the, the move towards legalizing marijuana is happening very fast across the nation. And it strikes me that actually maybe we should know a little more before we start making it entirely legal. Uh, but the fact is that there isn't enough information because it's been such a taboo subject and because marijuana, which is a very light drug compared to the other drugs, is uh, it's been treated as if it's a really hard drug and that uh, the Rockefeller drug laws in New York and they've been replicated across uh, the United States uh, are, are inadequate really to, to help us make a, a cogent decision about this. Matter. Well, they, right? they have in the United States. Okay, I, I was talking about the United States, but in other countries, they've been studying this drug a lot. I mean, in Israel and Germany and, and Canada, they have been studying marijuana in, in states where it's not a Schedule One drug as it is here. Schedule One means by law there is no medical use, so how can you study the benefits of marijuana? But we have enough research outside of America that shows that it does have medicinal um, purposes. And even, I don't know if you've uh, watched the CNN reports by Dr. Gupta, you know, he started off thinking, yeah, we need to do more research on this. And and after his first uh, interviews, he found out that it does have medicinal purposes and did three more shows on, on the medicinal purposes for marijuana. So we do know that it does have uh, of many, many benefits. What I'm saying is it is also beneficial for stopping other hard drug use. And that, and does, that is what I was yeah, like research. Yeah, tell us how that works. Well, well, people are, you know, when you're using hard drugs, you sometimes do have a, a physical addiction. And I like to talk about the addiction debate as well. And mm-hmm. so what they, people tell me is that when they're out there looking for heroin or looking for uh, methamphetamine or, or craving for that, marijuana will help slow down their cravings, will help them feel like they don't need so much drugs, and that gives them a little bit of time to do something else. If they need treatment, they can go to treatment, but then they go to treatment and they're not allowed to use marijuana. We're going to have to continue this after the break, but this is a fascinating conversation, Marion, and I'm so glad we've had it. I'm sure people are glued to their sets right now. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE.
case. And uh, I'm Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm the uh, opinion editor of Newsweek magazine. And we, uh, we've got a great guest, Miriam Burry, who is the Associate Professor of Sociology at Bentley University in Massachusetts, is addressing, uh, providing some real hard information and good sense about a difficult topic, which is the use of soft drugs and how prejudice and ignorance has ensured that we really don't get this, uh, dis- uh, dis- a proper good discussion about this, and we never get to any truth of it. This is, uh, ignorance has completely smothered the debate, and I'm glad that she's going to put it straight on a number of things. Miriam, uh, what would you say that uh, as we're moving state by state, it seems pretty slowly towards a time when uh, at least marijuana will be available for medicinal use. Uh, some places it will also be used, used for recreational use. Uh, do you think that this is uh, now just a, a one-way pendulum, that we're, we're heading that way and it's, uh, it's all going to work out in the end? Well, I think it's uh, it's moving too slowly, and as I said in the very beginning, that we we need to stop the uh, the whole war on drugs to begin with. I'm not the only person who's been saying this, by the way. I mean, for years and years, people have been writing about this, and uh, I don't know if you've read it, but the UN Commission on the War on Drugs, back in 2011, uh, wrote a report, and the commissioners were former presidents of Mexico, of Brazil, of Switzerland former Secretary of State of the U.S. and of Ghana, former German Ministry of Health and others, they all reported that the war on drugs has failed and must end. So I think that we are uh, absolutely going too slowly. But to go back to the, the uh, subject of marijuana and, and why uh, we even have to um, change policies on that, these policies are not being changed by uh, politicians, as you know. They're being changed by public demand. And so it's going to take public demand to change all drug policies, I believe. And, and you, you talked about ignorance, but a lot of this is not ignorance. It's people who have vested interest in keeping drugs illegal. And the soft drugs, I mean, I can give you an example of ecstasy. I mean, ecstasy is not a drug I want my daughters to do, but it's, it's still not a very, very dangerous drug, as many people led us to believe. In fact, they sent $14 million, and you can look this up on maps.org. Uh, two researchers at Johns Hopkins University uh, received $14 million over the course of the years to study ecstasy and said that it, it just totally changes your brain, according to their research. Well, other countries around, you know, Germany, Canada, they could never replicate this research. And finally, they found out that, that he was, first of all, not even using uh, ecstasy on, on the rats he was studying. And when he was studying people, he didn't even ask them if they were using other drugs besides ecstasy. So all of this is flawed research that unless you understand the methods, unless you can point out the flaws of the methods, people are, of course, going to believe that because they don't know how to read this research. It's people that are invested in this, that are continuing this, this uh, research on, on all these drugs being so harmful. When we know the harm is in the social environment, putting drugs in the social environment that is illegal and you have to go to get it illegally and you can get arrested for it and you will get a criminal record for it unless, of course, you have lawyers that can get you out of that, or parents that can, you know, call a friend and get you out of that. Well, the poor and the minorities in poor communities do not have that. So they are suffering from these 40 years of the war on drugs, as well as other people, too, because, you know, people in the suburbs that I studied, you know, they became impoverished by this as well. So it's not just, you know, poor and minorities that are suffering from the war on drugs. But I, I did want to, we were talking about how, 
you know, marijuana can get you off of other hard drugs. And I know that many listeners like to hear a story. So I'd like to tell you the story of Harry. Do I have time to do that? Please do, yeah. Okay. So Harry, um, you know, he was a heroin addict from the time he was maybe 13, 14 years old. And he uh, went to juvenile delinquency homes. And then when he got out of that, he, he robbed banks to support his habit. And he finally got, you know, three strikes and you're out, and he got 30 years in prison. When he came out of prison at 58 years old, I worked with Harry, and I, I, I put him in college. Now, that's one thing you can do in America. Thankfully, you can go to college at any age. And at 58 years old, he was in a community college, and he started going to college. And I said, you have to not use heroin. Well, he used it a few times, I know, because I used to talk to him every day. And then he, he started not using heroin and only using marijuana and alcohol. And then after about two years, he was in community college and about to graduate, he told me that he was stopping his alcohol use because he said, I can't really study and get up in the morning and go to school when I drink alcohol. He says, but I can't stop marijuana because this is what really keeps me from being totally depressed uh, for the rest of my life. And his probation officer uh, pulled him into the probation office and told him he had to go to treatment every day, which interfered with his uh, going to school because his urine tested for marijuana. So I called up his uh, parole officer, I'm sorry, parole officer, and I said, you know, why are you doing this to Harry? He's in school, you know, he's doing well, he used to be a heroin addict, Not, you know, what's marijuana compared to heroin? And he said, well, you can't tell me how to do my job. So I called his supervisor and thankfully got someone nice on the phone. And she said, you know, I think your brother's doing pretty well. He doesn't have to go to treatment. And she moved the probation officer so that he could continue his classes in, in college and not have to go to treatment instead for marijuana. And actually, a, you know, that's what got, got him off of uh, heroin to begin with. That's a great story. And, uh, and I'm sure that it's been repeated many, many times uh, across the nation. Uh, this is such a complicated uh, – we could do a whole hour on this, couldn't we? I know, I know. There's because so the, much to go yeah. on with it. Yeah, but, I, but it does look as if we're, we're seeing some sort of political sense in, in many respects in as much as there is slowly. And maybe it's to do with, the, the, you know, the baby boomers who I guess more of them rather than less of them uh, smoked some weed at some time in their life. And, uh, and they didn't. To become sort of crazy people. So maybe it's to do with them growing finely through the, the system. Well, when it comes to marijuana policy, uh, but perhaps that's true because, you know, they are changing marijuana policy. But I, I think that we, we cannot stop there. And I, and, and I believe that, you know, what's happening in, in Baltimore right now is just, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg, as they say. And, you know, we, we can address so many of these problems by stopping the war on drugs. And how do you stop a war on drugs? That's just a political slogan, right? That's, that's an idea. You stop the war on drugs by dismantling the DEA. And some politicians are going to have to be brave enough to, to say this and do it. And, you know, it, it's not that difficult to do. We're, we're, we're dismantling the marijuana policies right now across the state. And instead of wasting this money that we have wasted on millions of people being impoverished and marginalized and put in, in, in prison and, and jail and having criminal records and devastating entire communities with the war on drugs, not to mention what we've done, we've done you know, outside of America globally with this money, we can put this money into social recovery initiatives. You know, we've spent 
For 40 years, we've been putting money into the DEA, billions of dollars. We can just spend 10 years trying to undo some of the damage they have done and put money into social initiatives. I call them social recovery. We need to recover now with the damage that we have done to these people, to, to communities and to families. And that's would you go, I think if we... Yeah, would you go as far as to say that all drugs should be legal and it should all be on prescription and you would regulate it in that way? Or how would you, if you were the drug queen, how would you deal with it? Well, you know, there actually have been many people that, you know, that know more about this than I do that have already come up with a blueprint on how to deregulate all drugs. And I think the, the, the best thing you could read is the report by uh, Glenn Greenwald on the Portugal experiment. You know, Portugal decriminalized all drugs. And this was over 10 years ago, and, and he wrote a 10-year report on what happened after 10 years. Uh, drug use did not go up among youth. It went down because they see these drug addicts that are now on the street, and they don't want to be that way. So all drug use, that, uh, and the crime went down as well. So you could read that whole report. If you, you could look it up and easily find it, the, the, uh, what happened when uh, Portugal decriminalized all drugs. So that's one way of doing it. There are many blueprints for this, and, you know, I, I, I could not ex- explain them all right now. But what we do know is that what's, what they're doing now is not working. It's destroying communities. Thank you, Miriam Burry, the Associate Professor of Sociology at Bentley University, for such a sensible uh, talk on a very difficult subject because it, it, it suits so many people to mess up facts from fiction in this. And uh, it's great to get someone with a very clear brain who can explain exactly uh, how uh, this terrible problem, which is causing so much division within our society and causing so much injustice too, will be brought to an end. Uh, I'm Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine, standing in for Leslie Marshall on The Leslie Marshall Show. It's been a great pleasure, and I look forward to speaking. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that under-deliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time, you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.